Welcome to Stockholm Food Movement Podcast, part of Sweden in Transition podcast series. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they decided to do things differently and explain why. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Thomas and Anka, co-founder of Johannes Urban Farm, a local farm growing and selling fish, vegetables and herbs. We will talk about aquaponics, which allows to produce food all year round, whether it is 30 degrees hot or minus 30 degrees cold. We will learn how this method achieves a very low environmental footprint. And of course, we will discuss more about food transition. Hi, Thomas and Anke. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us more about yourself before we start our discussion? My full name is Anke. Uh, van Lenteren. I'm Dutch. I will be responsible for the growing of the plants and the herbs, and I'm one of four co-founders. And I'm uh, Thomas Bielkema-Petterson. I'm more responsible for the, the business side of things. I'll probably end up initially at least carrying a responsibility for the, the fish as well. For Sweden in transition, we said that the world is needing urgent reinvention. What do you think about that? To me, it's fairly clear that we need that. We're obviously in a situation that needs change because we're going to get another 2 billion people in 30 years or so. The FAO thinks that we need something like 70% more food produced. And most agricultural land is already in use today. So we need to be more effective. So there's a lot of work to be done. I agree with the Swedish climate um, activist. There is no planet B. What is your journey and how did you come to create Johannes? We've been looking at um, sustainable food production for a while, the two of us. We've been working with a seawater greenhouse, which is mainly in coastal regions in tropical climates. But when we started looking at aquaponics, it looked like it could really happen here in Sweden and we could grow food locally. So that's how we... It's been a long journey, <laughs> and um, and it's very exciting to do something near and and dear. Yeah. So you decided that you wanted to do something that was specific and relevant to Sweden, right? Did you have a farm beforehand that you converted to new technologies, or how did it all started? In theory, aquaponics can be used anywhere. But I grew up in uh, in Holland in a horticultural area where most of the tomatoes that you see on the shelves here come from. So I know how food is produced. I know what it, I've seen what it takes and I also have seen, you know, how destructive it can be. And it, it's time we also changed that, I think. I actually come from an IT background and, and took an interest in sustainable society, particularly food production, a number of years ago. Something else took over, which was we started an organization called Aquo, which is data systems uh, that's used mainly in Africa and Southeast Asia to keep track of things like all the rural uh, water wells in the whole country, for example. So helping those countries track their infrastructure. I uh, wanted to do something local because I ended up traveling a lot. Food policy strategy in, by the Swedish government that actually focuses on local food production and sustainability really opens up new possibilities, as well as I think everyone around us is are really aware of the impact of the lifestyle we, that we have, and they would like to do something different. Uh, so we, th we see 
the possibilities exist now in a way they, they really didn't do before. Explain us, what is aquaponics? What changes with that new system? So aquaponics, essentially you grow fish and vegetables in a closed system. It's a water-based system. So think of it like this. You, you take fish food and you feed it to the fish. The fish, essentially, they breathe like we breathe, but through gills rather than through our lungs. We emit carbon dioxide when we breathe, and the fish emit uh, ammonia when they breathe. The ammonia is poisonous to them in the water, so you have to clean that out somehow. So you have bacteria cultures uh, in bacteria beds, essentially. They're beneficial bacteria. They convert the ammonia to nitrite, which is also not uh, healthy for a fish. And then they also convert another type of bacteria converted to nitrate, which is less problematic. But then nitrate becomes then the macro food, the macronutrient for the plants. And the plants take that up. Together, the bacteria and the plants clean the water, and the water goes back to the fish. So, so you have a system that uses very little water because it circulates, and it actually produces both you know, fish and vegetables so that, that you can eat. So that's the concept. This is not a new concept. For example, in China, they've been in the rice paddies. They've actually had fish in their rice paddies for the longest time because you get this sort of beneficial system automatically then. But now with improvements in technology, particularly LED lighting, which is very, very efficient and becomes cheaper and cheaper to manufacture, allows us to do the growing, you know, essentially enclosed environments. So our pilot installation that we're in the process of building right now is in an old milk barn. We used to have cows in there. Now it's going to have this uh, fish and vegetable facility instead, and it's entirely enclosed. So it uses electricity, but in Sweden, the electric production is essentially without carbon emissions. So it's not a very big environmental impact to do that. Sweden also have excess capacity of electricity, so it's a good place to do it in. So that, that's sort of the, the, the background to the technology. What would be ultimately your production? What kind of vegetables? What kind of fish? The fish is, a, is more a technical component of the system. It's a way of getting nutrients to the plants. So you don't actually have to go and buy expensive artificial fertilizer. The side benefits is you also get fish. So the, the fish we're looking to grow is rainbow trout, which is not a native species in Sweden, but there's a huge amount of uh, rainbow trout actually bred in Sweden for sport fishing. They breed it and let it out into the water so people can fish it. And then we're going to initially grow leafy vegetables, salads and herbs and things, because it's relatively easy to get started with. But in the long run, we want to grow any type of vegetables that we can. Probably things like paprika or zucchini or whatever. There are slightly different designs of the system to do that, but we're starting with leafy vegetables. It's in-house, all year round, So you don't take advantage of the sun when there is sun? No. When you use this system, the vegetables kind of float on water. It's a very controlled system and it is easier to keep it the same all the time. So the lamps will be on 18 hours a day. It will simply be the same year in, year out. We hopefully can start, if we scale up, go into like a passive building, meaning it doesn't need, you know, it hardly needs any electrical input. And the lamps themselves also generate heat. So we, we will have 
more of a cooling problem than a heating problem, possibly. And a cooling problem in Sweden mm. is not such a big deal no. most of the <laughs> most part of, of the, the year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason mm. why big IT organizations put server farms in Sweden because mm. cooling of, of big server farms is actually the big, one of the big issues. It's, it's a bit crude putting it that way, but you can open the door most of the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't do it quite like that because you want an environment where you, you have a very controlled environment, you, which means you can have optimal growing conditions most of the time. The growing season, as you know, in Sweden is so short, three months in the year. We are not going to be able, if we want more food security in Sweden, this is just not a viable system. If we go back to this context mm. of Sweden and uh, what you were saying about the government and the priority that have been mm. set, can you tell us more about what is the plan and the strategy? As I understand it, Sweden has uh, the highest amount of import of foods in the EU. And uh, if you look at fish and vegetables, uh, essentially 80% of what we eat is imported. You were mentioning that it's a good time to launch such mm. a business. So do you have help doing what you do? Yeah. The Swedish government, for the first time ever, put together a strategy for food. Essentially means Sweden wants to become more self-resilient producing food locally. And what that's also meant is that they've put government subsidies towards things like innovation. And we've, together with a number of partner organizations, specifically Kaloop uh, and Consinity and some ICA, have gotten money from Vinova to build this pilot plant that we're building. The challenge in Sweden is that you have only three months if you want to do open air and natural mm -hmm. growing of food. On the other hand, you were mentioning also that the energy production in Sweden is very clean mm. and you have excess of energy production. Can you explain us more about that and what are the source of energy production here in Sweden? And the sort of the distribution is about 50% hydropower, 40% nuclear power, and 10% wind. And there's also some cogeneration with biofuels and things like that. So the numbers aren't exact, but it's sort of in that scale of things. And probably apart from Norway, I think Sweden has one of the lowest amount of uh, carbon emissions for its uh, power production in the whole world. You know, it's a good place to have energy-intensive uh, production of different things. But um, one thing to also mention is that um, solar panels are getting better and better priced. The idea also would be to have solar panels so that in summer you can generate your own electricity and possibly sell the excess back to the net. And then in winter you'd be buying, absolutely. More broadly, what would you say need changing in our food system in the world today? There is um, a lot of transport and wastage. There's an enormous amount of food waste. I think it's a third. This is clearly ludicrous. There are a lot of people starving and we throw food away. It's A, in the distribution system or things are rejected because they don't look 100% or, you know, people forget that there was salad at the back of the fridge and it gets thrown away. We waste an awful lot of food. And that food is grown using a lot of water. It uses fertilizers pesticides. Anything you grow outside is, is going to have to be subject to some kind of pest control, which can be biological or chemical. So our large food systems are actually very detrimental to, to the planet. And um, we really urgently need to look at that because there's one thing that we do, we can stop flying, but we can't stop eating. 
So we really have to change something in that system urgently and stop trucking everything around as well. So we have to produce locally if we want to change this. We need to also be clear on things that we can and cannot eat depending on the season. Yes and no, right? I mean, partially what we're doing at Johannes is we're essentially going to start producing things locally that otherwise you would have to bring import because it can't be grown during the winter here. We're trying to combat some of that. But there are also other things. I mean, if you go to the supermarket here during the winter on in you know in the fruit and vegetable department you will find little boxes of blueberries those blueberries come from south america it, does this make sense i mean sweden is full of blueberries there are more blueberries than we can possibly eat probably we have to just make sure we can pick them and they get picked a lot of them and get frozen you can eat frozen blueberries during the winter season It's not quite the same as eating a fresh, well, fresh, it's been transported from half, half across the world, but nevertheless, right, it appears to be fresh. But do you really need to eat a fresh blueberry from South America when you can have a, a frozen one that you can heat up uh, that was just grown in the forest? So it's a combination of thinking of what you eat as well as doing things like what we're trying to do, which is picking out certain types of food and growing it locally in systems based on new technology and integrated systems, right? Related to the food waste that Anke was talking about, there's a good UN report uh, that says that fruit and vegetables in Europe, the waste is 56%. More than half of what we produce goes to waste. That's insane. That doesn't work. I mean, that, that makes no sense. One of the things that we're involved with it as well is looking to take food waste. If you're lucky today, food waste gets turned into compost or biogas. But that's not the best use of food waste. The best use is if you can actually take food that's otherwise wasted and actually find another way to make it into food so you eat it. The second best thing to do is to make it into animal food. So we're involved in a project looking at taking food waste to become fish food. And some fish, like tilapia, for example, can eat vegetables straight off. Other fish, like rainbow trout that we're going to have, they can't eat a fully vegetable diet. They need animal proteins. The idea is to take that, feed it to insects. So in this uh, case, uh, black soldier fly becomes you know, their larvae, and you make fish food out of the larvae. So you can close the loop. You have fish food that goes to the fish, produces fish and vegetables, mainly vegetables, quite a lot. There's some food waste in the system, both at our production and all the way to before you give it to the consumer. More than half of the food waste happens before it comes to the consumer. You can gather that up and feed it back into this system where you can generate proteins from it, either directly for fish food or indirectly via insects. You could also eat the insects. It's not legal in Sweden to make insect food mm, yet, but yet. it's coming, I'm sure. Then we can close the loop. We can actually have a very much more efficient system. And you get other benefits, like you get a local economy because you can't really transport food waste long distances it has to be done locally and you get jobs and you know the money stays in the economy and you mentioned a lot of actors from the let's say the food transition ecosystem how would you describe what's happening at the moment and how all those people are working together in sweden right now 
I think there is an absurd in belief that not only that things need to change, but that they can change. I really feel there is a lot of different things bubbling up. Hopefully this will this will result into some concrete action because there is still an awful lot of talking rather than a lot of acting. But the mood has changed, I think, compared to five years ago. There is much, much more awareness and willingness. If you go to sort of food tech events, there's a lot of talk about, you know, logistics and apps and things like that. But in the end, you're going to have to produce food. You can't solve the issue of Sweden importing 80% of our food by logistics and apps. If you want to produce more food, you have to produce food. We are working on that end, and we think that's really important. We are starting relatively small with a pilot project, but our goal is to have the biggest fish and vegetables production in Sweden here, just next to Stockholm. That's what we're aiming at. Are there a lot of farmers, have they declined? Do they earn their life properly? You know, what's happening with this population in Sweden? A lot of farms are being turned into golf courses. Since the end of the Cold War, Sweden has really altered its food reliability. We started to import much, much more than was ever done before. It's very, very hard for a farmer to make a good living. A lot of them have also got things like bed and breakfast or farm shops. So they have to start to be really creative in order to make a good living because of the climate as well. And it's not something that young people want to do. Although, having said that, there is a very strong movement in, in Sweden for organic. There are quite a lot of young people who want to go into the strictly organic part of the farming. In Sweden, people are not prepared to pay for the difference uh, compared to imports very much because it's more expensive to grow things in Sweden. But at the same time, Swedish farmers have a relatively good set of practices to do farming in a way that doesn't harm the environment too much. We're in a reasonably good place to improve from. And that's, I think, also what the new Swedish food strategy is all about. We need to invest more in it. We need to encourage it. We need to also probably get people to pay a bit more for their, for their food. That comes with other types of requirements we are doing in our project uh, with the Venova money, which is tracking and tracing foods. You can show people where the food really came from. Today, you, you might have an ecological label on it, but th there's nothing beyond that. You can't look at it and say, okay, where did this come from? Who grew it? Under what conditions? What was the environmental impact? Those kind of things. What was the carbon footprint of this? But we're working on putting together digital systems that can trace all this the whole way through so that you could, with your mobile phone, essentially rip the QR code and get the full picture displayed to you, which probably you will only do once or twice. And then you say, okay, I trust this stuff because you know you could do it at any time and see exactly what's happening with that. It's hard for farmers to make the kind of investments that needs to happen because the margins in food production are very low. It has to be something that society kind of together steps in and said, we need to improve this. The food strategy of the Swedish government is a first good step. 
Something quite specific, at least compared to France, where I'm coming from, is that most of the food is being bought in one of the two main retailers, so yeah. Coop and Ica, mm -hmm. compared to France or any city in southern Europe where you buy a lot of your food from food markets, where you can have a more direct relationship. Absolutely. Yeah, there is um, a movement called Reco. You buy direct from the farmer, the producer, It's not a nice-looking French market. You, it literally is the back of the van. You pay in, you order online, you pay in advance, you turn up, you have half an hour to find your eggs and your bread and your whatever else you're buying, and it's done. Because of the, the regulations, they cannot make it look nicer. I think they can. They cannot open up like a stall and say, "I'm I'm selling here today." But you are talking to the people who have actually produced that chicken or I'd love a proper food market there is one during it starts in April on Katharina Bangatan there's like a farmer's in market Stockholm. every uh, yeah, yeah every Saturday and that seems to be very very popular it's developing yeah. apparently yes so. yeah. and and what's the mindset of the retailers so if you're discussing those issues on price on choice So the best way of encouraging people to make the right choice is offering the right alternatives. Mm -hmm. And maybe some alternatives mm -hmm. shouldn't be there in the first place. The conversations we've had with the, essentially the owners of the big supermarkets is actually very encouraging. They're very aware of all of these things. It's not necessarily easy for them to nudge people in the right direction because consumers are very like... I want this shape of my milk cartons and why did you change it and it doesn't fit my refrigerator anymore and it's like well but this is locally produced so it's I mean it's an interaction between the consumer the market supermarket and what's available I think there's an awareness in the whole food industry that we need to change and it's going to take willingness to try things to make it really work Have you seen Interesting initiatives elsewhere, uh, apart from Sweden. Philips, the big Dutch manufacturer, they have taken their manufacturing out of the city where it started, and a lot of their old factory buildings are being converted to for local designers, big variety startups, and one of them is an aquaponics farm. It's actually in an old Philips building. That was incredibly encouraging to see because his conditions are very like ours. In California, they do make use of, of the, the sunlight, but, but he was in very much an enclosed building like, like we will be. What are the challenges ahead and what should we wish you? There are loads of challenges, clearly. <laughs> I mean, as you could hear the way I just described it, there are many things that could sort of you could get wrong or but one of the hardest things is actually in Sweden people are not used to investing in food production the Netherlands if you go to the Rabobank so the agricultural bank and say I, I want to borrow lots of money to build a greenhouse they kind of look at your business plan and they go okay that makes sense we know how to do this make these changes whatever here's some money you know go and build your big greenhouse in Sweden This experience doesn't exist. You have to go to different types of investors, and that can be a challenge. But we hope that investors here that look for not only financial sustainability, but also ec ecological sustainability are going to be interested because in the end, food is something you need every day. You also need to get people understand what you produce and want to buy it. That's also a challenge. 
visionary investors that's i think <laughs> is is what you could wish us yeah in the future and more generally if we go back to the food transition we were discussing earlier are you optimistic or pessimistic we're optimistic by nature otherwise we wouldn't do what we do but at the same time i see that we're moving too slowly it's fairly obvious things are not happening fast enough and then you're like who's going to do something about this and you're like well maybe i need to do something so that's what we do and that probably explains the open source you were mentioning earlier you know there's a lot of gain from working together many different ways and, and being open about what you do I have three questions. You can pick uh, one or answer the three. Can you give us your source of inspirations or if you have a quote and or a book that you want to share? I have actually. What inspires me is nature. I think my credo has been life is not a dress rehearsal. We only have one shot at it. Can't wait. And the The most lovely book I read recently was The History of Bees by Maya Lund. Uh, she's a Norwegian writer, which basically tells the story of how beekeeping started, what it is, the state it is in now, i.e. has plenty of problems, particularly in the Americas, where they have treated it as an industry, and what we could be looking at in the future so it, it's three different time scales and it's it's a very fascinating because in our free time we are beekeepers as well so for me it is a very inspiring book it's nature it's a wake-up call and it tells a very relevant story i would pick something like the art of the start by guy kawasaki it's a good relatively short version of how do you put together a way of presenting what you do so that you can get more money to do the work you do because we need people to dare to take risks to make changes and it's sometimes really hard to do that in old established organizations you have to start new things to make change so people that do that inspire me let's be more daring then Absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Thanks a lot to Thomas and Andre for this conversation and thank you all for listening. Stockholm Food Movement is an independent podcast. You can support it by sharing or adding five stars on iTunes so more people can discover it. Check out also when the next meetup is taking place at the Impact Hub. See you soon.